You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, the official podcast of the Coastal LA Singles Ministry, where our focus is reaching up, reaching in, and reaching out. When you hear terminology like seek the kingdom first, if you don't really have an idea as to what that is, how are you going to seek it? How are you going to go after it? And this was something that was amazingly huge with the Jews. Knowing that the kingdom was coming, knowing that a Messiah was coming, it had a huge impact on them. So that when it was ushered in, people did take note. So tonight, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at the kingdom of God. Purpose of this study is to show the power in prophecy. The continuity of the Old Testament with the New Testament. And it's something that really... We're going to be looking at Daniel in particular tonight, but it goes back all the way to Genesis. Genesis 12, Genesis 18, with the covenant that God entered into with Abraham, letting him know that there would be a deliverer. There would be a Messiah that would come through his lineage. And that all peoples on the earth, not just the Jews, but all peoples would be blessed through that descendant. You know, thinking this through... You go back and you look at the early teachings in the Gospels from Jesus. One of the most central themes in his teachings was the kingdom of God. And I think with that, because of the Old Testament prophecy, there were many people that enthusiastically followed Jesus just to hear him teach about the kingdom, what that was about, what they should expect, because they had been waiting for the kingdom for years. John the Baptist and Jesus began their ministries preaching that the kingdom was near. Matthew, I, Matthew 3 is where we're going to start out. Somebody, uh, well, yeah, if somebody could back that up for me, that'd be awesome. But Matthew 3, verse 1 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. I'm going to be coming out of the Holman's Bible for the entire message tonight. So if there's any confusion on that, again, it's the HCSB. If you've got an uh, app, you could probably download that or connect with that tonight. But again, he says, The kingdom of, God, of heaven has come near, for he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Shortly thereafter, Jesus Christ in Matthew 4, verse 17 says, From, that on, from then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent. Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. We see in the Beatitudes, Jesus talks about the kingdom five times in that initial sermon of his. And with that, when we think about this, what was it the Jews were waiting for when it came to the kingdom? Anybody? Yeah, they, they were. There was a mystery on the prophecy, and that they were being subjugated by who? The Romans. And the Jews wanted the Romans kicked out of Jerusalem. They wanted, they wanted the Romans run out of town. And they thought this deliverer, this Messiah, was going to be the one that would do just that and then usher in what they thought was going to be a physical kingdom. But it goes so far beyond that. Jesus' announcement, the thing that was so cool about this too, because we know that the Jews looked for what when it would come to a Messiah? Miracles, wonders, and signs, right? And this is exactly what Jesus did. His announcement was, unco- was accompanied by unusual miracles. Those attending Jesus' teachings, the presentation of the kingdom, saw incurable diseases being cured, afflictions being cured by His power, the power of His touch or His word. 
In Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6, it gives us the credentials of the king. In his first coming, it talks about the kingdom would be at hand or had come near because the king was on the scene. With that, let's take a look at Isaiah 35, starting out in verse 4. This passage, even though it's in the Old Testament, has major significance for us today. It says, Say to the cowardly, Be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. And then the encouraging aspect of this is amazing. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool of water and the thirsty land springs of water. and the haunt of jackals in their lairs, there will be grass, reeds, and papyrus. A road will be there and a way. It will be called the holy way. The unclean will now travel on it, but it will be for the one who walks the path. Even the fool will not go astray. I mean, this is just loaded with information as to what was yet to come through Christ. You know, where did the enthusiasm and the passion that these people had for this arrival come from? You know, more than 500 years before John the Baptist started talking about it, before Jesus started talking about it, the prophet Daniel had a vision of the future. And in this vision, he saw the kingdom that he was subject to and the kingdoms that were to come after him. Just give you a little bit of background on Daniel. Next slide. We need to go back to the year 625 B.C. And it's likely that this was the year that Daniel was born in. Daniel was a young teenager during the fall of Nineveh in 612 B.C. And this was an event that gave Babylon control of Western Asia. All of Western Asia was under Babylonian rule. And at the end of his teen years, Daniel was taken captive to Babylon. And this is where the great story of Daniel begins. You know, we see Daniel being this really spiritual guy. Most of us are familiar with Daniel in the line, or Meshach, Abednego, and Shadrach, and being thrown into the fire because of their unwillingness to bow down to the king. And... Daniel must have had a a godly influence in his life very early on. And we know if we go back to the book of Kings, which is during this period of time, King Josiah was the king at that point in time. And he was one of the few faithful kings. You go through 1st and 2nd Kings, 80% of these guys were a mess. They were about self. They weren't about God, nor were they about God's people. But Josiah tried... Uh, to reinstall the law. He had a spiritual focus himself, and Daniel had the good fortune of being raised during this period of time. After he was born, for the next 16 years, the revivals that were brought to Judah by Josiah were something that touched his life personally. He had the opportunity to experience that personally. And I would assume that it's probably not too much of a stretch that because of this period of time in history, Daniel's parents were faithful as well. And History actually shows us the godliness of the nation, what they actually enjoyed under the leadership of Josiah during this period of time. There's a commentator, writer, by the name of W.A. Criswell. He says that Daniel captures the downward spiral after the fateful day of Josiah's death at the hands of Pharaoh Necho at the Megiddo in the Valley of Jezreel. Following Josiah's death and the plunging of the nation into rampant idolatry, Daniel formed attitudes of faithfulness to God that never changed. 
The sudden and extreme contrast now introduced into his political and moral surroundings made this decision, his decision, to serve God so much more meaningful during that time in his life. And as the kingdom of Judah reeled in dizzily in idolatry and wickedness, Daniel girded himself to withstand rather than to drift with the current of his time. You know, he was a man of conviction. He took a stand for what God had called him to, what he had seen godly people adhere to. In Daniel 1, verse uh, 3, give you a little bit of background as to why it was that King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him to uh, translate a dream that he had had. It starts out in Daniel 1, verse 3. It says, The king ordered Espinaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for the instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace, and to teach them the Chaldean language and its literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time they were to serve in the king's court. Among them from the descendants of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officials gave them other names. He gave the name Bethelzazar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. So this is how Daniel was set up to, be, to come into contact with the king. And it was amazing. As you go on through the passage, it says that these men had ten times the ability of any of the king's wisest men. They didn't get sucked into the moors of the community and the honor that they had being pulled in to the king's household. They refrained from the wine and the rich food. They, they had a very strict diet. I mean, some of you in this room have done the Daniel diet. I mean, there, there were health implications involved. They wanted to make sure that they took care of themselves so they could glorify God in everything that they did. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and it haunted him. And it was, I, I love the way he handled things. He, he put it out there to his wise men, his diviners, his, you know, his, his uh, Miss Chloe's, uh, whatever the situation was there. And it was interesting. They, they were all, these guys were scared to death. They didn't even want to engage. And they wanted the king to tell them what the dream was. But the king, you know, was, was a guy who had been around the block a few times. He knew if he gave him the dream, it would be pretty easy to put a spin on it. So he's like, you know what? If you guys have got the power that you claim you have, you tell me what the dream was and you interpret it. And they, they weren't willing to engage. And basically, they were sentenced to death. But when Daniel heard about this, he, he sent word to the king that he'd be able to take care of this for him. But he needed a day. And he, with, during that time, he prayed. And God gave him divine inspiration as to what the dream was that King Nebuchadnezzar had. And that's what we're going to pick up in Daniel 2, verse 26. The king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me the dream, the dream that I had, and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king, No wise man, medium, diviner, priest, or astrologer is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mystery. And he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days, your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these. And I, I just love the way Daniel sets this up. I mean, he could write his ticket from here. But does he take credit? He gives credit to where credit belongs, and that is to God. 
I mean, he's, he's sharing the good news with the king here. He wants the king to know about this amazing God that he serves. And God had shown the king what would happen in those days to come. God was revealing to Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, and us when his kingdom would come and what it would be like. Next slide. As uh, I go through the rest of Daniel, I've put this up on the screen so you can kind of reference it as we go through it. Daniel reveals the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And we see the first kingdom comes out right here. It's the kingdom of gold in verses 32, 37 through 38. The time period, as I've already stated, was around 539 to 626 B.C. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king. In verse 37 it says, Your Majesty, you are King of Kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Whenever people live or wild animals or birds of the air, He has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. He goes on to reveal the second kingdom, the silver chest and the arms in verse 39. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. And we can see that that second kingdom that was inferior was the Persian kingdom, 539 to 532 B.C. And he breaks it down for him. The Persian army took Babylon without a fight. What they did is they actually diverted the water supply going into Babylon. And once they diverted the water supply, the water levels dropped down below the walls of the city, and the Persian army was able to march in where the water had come in before. It dropped down so low that they were actually able to march into the city through the walls, through the empty water canals. The next kingdom, the third kingdom, the bronze period, verse 39, says a third kingdom will rule over the whole earth. As we can see up here, 332 B.C. to 63 B.C. would rule over the entire earth. This third kingdom was Alexander the Great from Greece who had conquered Persia. He expanded his kingdom over the entire earth. And as he conquered four nations, and this is the thing that's so cool about God's timing and how he set things up for the kingdom to be ushered on in. With the Greek culture, what did they bring to the entire empire? The Greek language. So what would that, what would that enable to take place? Communication. God's word could go out to the entire known world at that point in time. And this is how God works, step after step, just kind of establishing what it is that was going to take place here. God in control. God setting things up. This prepared the known world to speak a common language, Greek. Verse 40. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything. And like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. You saw the feet and toes partly of potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay, and that the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong, and part of the kingdom will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The people will mix with one another, but will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with fired clay. So finally, he reveals the significance of the fourth kingdom. It would be strong, but it would be divided. And the Roman Empire, we know the Roman Empire was incredibly powerful. But because of how thinly they were spread, there was constant conflict throughout that kingdom. It was comprised of both uh, Romans and Jews, as far as the Jerusalem area is concerned. And there was constant tension, both ethnically 
and politically. Throughout the rest of Rome, it was the same situation. They would allow the conquered people that they took on to continue to run their municipalities with oversight of a legionnaire. So this made for, as they, they spread, their conquest spread further and further, they became weaker and weaker when it came to things, any form of uprising that would take place. So the prophecy tells us that in the time of the Roman Empire, God's kingdom, as we continue here in verse 34, would be ushered in. It says, as you were watching, a stone broke off, Daniel 2 verse 34, without a hand touching it. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay, and it crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. Verse 44. In the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. So the prophecy here tells us that in the time of the Roman Empire, God's kingdom would be established on earth. In verse 44b it says, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever. So now we've got these temporal kingdoms that were destroyed. There was constantly shifts. And this was prophetic. This was talking about what would come to pass. And we know from a historical standpoint, this is exactly what took place. Archaeologists have have booked and dated all this information for us. We know from a historical standpoint, any of you have been in ancient history? Nobody? Anybody study ancient history at all? Okay, a few of you. I would imagine that if you remember any of your studies, that these kingdoms are something that you're already familiar with because of your historical studies, let alone what we've got here in the Scriptures. This is what the Jews were excited about. Now again, they, they were of the impression that this was going to be a physical kingdom. But can any physical kingdom endure for eternity? And this is what was being talked about. The Jews were waiting to see this fulfilled, finding this kingdom and being a part of it. Now there were those that knew that there was something greater going on here, that it would spell out eternal life. So what is the kingdom of God? What can we learn from this passage in Daniel about God's kingdom? The kingdom of God is where God rules and reigns. The people that are a part of God's kingdom have chosen them to subject themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, when did the kingdom come? Well, we've already seen that the kingdom would come during the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was founded in 27 B.C. In Luke 1, verse 5, we know that Jesus was born during the Roman Empire under the reign of King Herod of Judah. Jesus preached that the kingdom of God had come near. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. Being asked by Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, how did Jesus respond? Luke 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one would say, look here or there, for you will see the kingdom of God is among you. How did Jesus respond? 
The kingdom of God is among you or in your midst. Now, if you have a 1984 NIV translation, it's a little jacked. It's not on. Uh, It's not as accurate as a lot of the other translations that are out there. If you were to go to the Greek, to Gehomans, the ESV version, or the uh, new NIV, and if you don't have the new NIV, it was updated in 2011, but the 2011 NIV translates, in your midst. Holman's translates, is among you. And the ESV translates, it's in the midst of you. The NIV translation from 1984 says, within you, which doesn't make any sense at all in context. I mean, had Jesus died and gone to heaven yet? It w- would it have been possible for the Holy Spirit to reside within the Pharisees at that point in time? So there's absolutely no way it could be within them, within you. But Jesus was there. Jesus is the one that ushered it in. So it would definitely be in their midst or among them. Amen? So the kingdom was in their presence. Well, who is in the kingdom of God? Next slide, Matthew 7, verse 21. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Who's in the kingdom of God? It's definitely not everyone. Jesus states right here, it's not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. I mean, just acknowledgement of Jesus isn't enough. It goes so much beyond that. Just attending church on Sunday isn't enough. Showing up on Sunday doesn't mean you're a part of God's kingdom. Only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven is a part of God's kingdom. And then that may, you may wonder, well, okay, well, what exactly is the will of God? Well, how would we know? Exactly. And if we're not in our Bible, how do we know if our life measures up to and aligns with what God has called us to? We've got to be in God's Word. Getting back to connecting. Getting back to change. Getting back to thriving. You know, we we saw the the component of the plan up there. The only way we're going to grow and mature and know what the will of God is, is to be engaged on that level. We've got to be praying on a daily basis. We need to be in God's Word. We need to be taking care of our own salvation. Working on it with fear and trembling. No one else... Well, I take that back. When we get further along in life or when we're an infant, life tends to have a little bit of a cycle. As a baby, you need somebody to feed you, right? And we see that even from a standpoint of biblical analogies in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews talks about the need to get on from the milk to the meat. As an adult, who feeds us? We feed ourselves. And it's the same thing spiritually. What is the will of God? If you don't know... I guarantee you, you're not on the right path. You're not in the Word of God. And we've got to make sure that we engage on that level personally, individually, each and every one of us. God's kingdom contains those people who wholeheartedly follow God's will. And you know, and and here's the thing. We can get caught up in all these other things when it comes to grace and mercy. And you know what? Those things are awesome. Do any of us deserve salvation? For those of us who were at the retreat, we know what the book of Ephesians says about God. I mean, the first three chapters of that book establish how amazing God is. How God has lavished all kinds of blessings on us. 
how He adopted us as His own children, how we have an inheritance just as if we were His own Son, Jesus Christ. And that's the amazing God that we serve. But Paul, in the latter portion of the book, the last three chapters, talks about the transition. If we know this is how we've been taken care of, if we know this is the inheritance we've been given, how should we conduct ourselves? Shouldn't it be out of gratitude and love for the love and mercy and grace that's been extended to us? How should we respond to the good news? How should we feel about the good news of Jesus Christ? Matthew 13, verse 30, uh, Matthew 13, verse 44. says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. For those of you turning pages, I'll slow down for a sec here. Sorry about that. Don't want you tearing any pages. Just give me an amen when you get there. You know, it's, it's a nice sound hearing those pages turn. I like that. I like the fact that some of you are still old school. I miss the days of my legal pad, not having to rely on something like this. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. How does he respond to this treasure? How should we respond to this treasure? It says, then in his joy... Not out of obligation, right? It says, in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has, but buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish and was full. They dragged it ashore sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous, and throw them into a blazing furnace. In that place, there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you know, this, this last verse, the last two verses there, seriously, God, the angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous. What kind of a loving God is that? What did he do at Calvary? I mean, could, could, he, could he do anything more extreme to demonstrate his love for us? Is there anything wrong with him having an expectation that because of what he did in the flesh is Jesus, that we would want to follow his son? That we would want to imitate his son? That we would want to model that same kind of lifestyle for others so others would have the ability to have the same kind of joy that's talked about the person that found the treasure in the field and was excited and joyful about his finding. Is God's expectation unrealistic? I don't think so. I don't think anybody could do anything more unrealistic than what he did. Giving it all up so we'd have the opportunity to have a relationship with him. The kingdom of God is a treasure. The kingdom of God is like a fine pearl. The kingdom of God is like good fish. When we find it, we should be willing to give up everything we have to enter it. And you know, we need to think about this for a minute. Did we not... I know there's a few people studying the Bible here, but for everybody else that's here, did you not make Jesus Lord of your life when you were baptized? What's changed? 
Seek the kingdom first. Is that how we conduct ourselves? What's changed? You know, I, I think back for me, and I want, to, I want you guys to all think about this because you all surrendered and made Jesus Christ Lord. What was the greatest challenge for you to give up in order to enter the kingdom of God? Anybody? What was the greatest challenge you faced in light of what you had to give up to enter the kingdom of God? Frankie? Your fiance. It's kind of huge. Guys, So persecution. Yes. Kike? So these things are huge. Jack, do you have your hand up? Oh, amen. Brian? You know, I look at myself, what was the greatest challenge for me to give up in order to enter the kingdom? And really, in thinking it through, there's a, a, a whole list of things, but ultimately it was giving up me. Selfishness. Selfishness in my marriage. Selfishness towards my kids. Feeling like they were a burden, not wanting to engage on that level. Porn. My job. And eventually my car and my house. These are all things that I give up for the kingdom of God. And we've, got to, we've got to think back. Why did, we, why did we make such a radical decision? All of us have different things that we gave up to come into the kingdom. Why did we do that then? But why is there an unwillingness now? Why have we backed off of those original convictions? Why is it we allow our work to crowd out Wednesday nights when we come together to be nursed, to be fed? And for those of us that are ministers, how can we shepherd a soul that isn't in our midst? But that's the responsibility I have. That's the responsibility Reuben has. That's the responsibility Sergio has. That's the responsibility Ken Chow has. We all knew those things when we came on board. Why is it we can sit in the fellowship today and feel good about giving zero? Seek the kingdom first. Giving up time to study the Bible with people. Something that all of us have been engaged in at one point in time or another. And now it's an inconvenience. Oh, you want me to come over at 9 o'clock tonight? Seriously? I've got to get up and go to work tomorrow. What if the people that were in your lives to study the Bible with you had that same mindset. How many of you would be here today if those that had come before you hadn't sought the kingdom first? Why were you excited and willing to make the necessary sacrifices? Anybody? Why did you decide to give the things up that you gave up? Brian? 
<laughs> you know, bro, it's funny. I haven't really thought through an answer for that one personally. I mean, there's a lot of things that are floating around in my head, but you know what? That, that cuts it down to the real basics. My way wasn't working. Two years into my marriage, separated. Two years into my marriage, adultery. The very things that I swore up and down I would never subject my kids through because I grew up in an abusive household. I knew what it, what it felt like to be beat. I knew what it felt like to be looked down on. I, looked, I know what it felt like to be marginalized, criticized, being told I would never amount to anything. And then to find myself slipping into the same things with my own children and being adopted my first, my only flesh and blood. My only flesh and blood relatives. And that's how jacked up we are in a fallen state outside of a relationship with God. And it was so exciting for me to look at my kids start to engage and go, kind of come off the list of, you know, junior terrorists. And, uh, you know, just be kind of rebellious and having some issues. I mean, literally, there were babysitting agencies that had pictures of my kids. I know they had them on a, on a poster board with the pins in it, with the red circle and a circle through it, because I'd call up and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, this is Steve. Uh, you know, we're at such and such an address. You guys have sent people out before. We need somebody to watch our kids next weekend. Oh, you know, sorry, we don't have anybody in that neighborhood anymore. Or we don't have anybody willing to go out to that address. I mean, like, guys, I live in Chino Hills. I'm not in the hood. I mean, literally, no one would watch my kids. And it wasn't my kids' fault. It was Jackie and myself. Our lack of consistency, our lack of being engaged, pursuing our careers, and not being aware of anything else that was going on around us. Who else? Why were you excited to give up what you gave up? Amen. You know, isn't that the power of God's Word? I mean, how does an agnostic guy like me end up doing what I'm doing? Other than the fact that God's amazing, God's Word's amazing, Jesus is amazing. Everything we look at that God's created is absolutely amazing. Uh, duh! <laughs> right? I mean, there's something we don't talk about enough. Going to heaven! I mean, really, it, when it comes, you know, most of you have seen the Francis Chan video and you've seen the rope with the little red tip. You know, I mean, we're so concerned with that inch. You know, man, I, I got I to work. I got I to make money. I got I to gotta put money away for retirement. I gotta! And then, you know, we got eternity. We're so focused on this and there's no focus on the rest. Steve. That's the amazing God we serve. <laughs> Amen, my brother. 
Amen. Jason. guys, um, I can think of two guys that I was close to through the bulk of my life. One of them, I don't even know where he is today, and I've tried finding him. Uh, the other one I just recently discovered on Facebook, and this was after like 25, 30 years of no communication. He had gotten divorced and was super embarrassed about the whole situation, literally disappeared out of my life. But I look at the relationships I've got in the kingdom, the realness, the depth of relationships, the friendships. Even only having been here for five years, I mean, some of my best relationships are here. Why? Because there's a common bond that unifies us, and that's Christ. Zyra. Didn't murder anybody? No. I appreciate that. <laughs> is huge what she just said. Do you guys hear it? You want to share that last sentence? Stand up and share that last sentence again. That's what happens to us. We forget what Jesus has done for us personally. I mean, you know, it's, it's not a big surprise. I mean, we look throughout the Scriptures, there's reminder after reminder after reminder after reminder. But we need times like this, where we think back about what we gave up. Because I think a lot of times we can think about what we've given up, and here's the context. You know, man, life as a disciple really sucks. I look at my non-Christian friends... They got this, they got that, it's going on, the best job, the best girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, car, house, whatever. And, and that's what our life as Christians look like. Look what I've given up. Look what I've done for you, God. And we lose sight of this component. What, is, what did God do for us? We've got to remember that. We need to go back to that. Time and time and time again. Because you know what? If we remember that, seeking the kingdom first is a no-brainer. Why would we do anything else? Why? Why would we do anything else? Matthew 6, verse 31. And you know, God knows we've got needs, that there's stuff that goes on. And there are things that we need to go after on a personal level. But sometimes we're consumed by that. And this is why Jesus says what He does in Matthew 6, verse 31. He says, so don't worry, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the idolaters. What does it say in the NIV? The pagans. I like this better. What's a pagan? What's a pagan? A little bit clearer as to what an idolater is, though. You know, what's the idol? What's the idol in your life? For the idol seekers, 
Those that go after money. There's nothing wrong with money. But greed will choke out the kingdom in a heartbeat. Lack of contentment will choke out the kingdom in a heartbeat. For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. See, this is something else that we, we kind of get off out on, uh, from time to time. We stop with seek the kingdom. That's kind of nebulous. Seek His righteousness. We know what that is. We know what Jesus has done. We know what He was willing to give up. We know the only reason we have life is because He walked His life sinless. Therefore, the wages of sin had absolutely no hold on Him. Therefore, He rose, He resurrected, went back into heaven, and gives us the opportunity to have that same relationship with God today. But seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Why? How much power do we have over tomorrow today? (laughs) Absolutely zero. We don't even know if we're going to wake up for sure tomorrow. And I don't stress about that because if you're in a right relationship with God, that's a good thing. Don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. And I would imagine, I mean, I love this about Jesus. Does he have a firm grasp on things here? Each day has enough trouble of its own. Isn't that true? Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about the future. Why? Have zero control over it. We're not even promised tomorrow. Well, you know, when we consider making radical steps to sacrifice for God's kingdom, what are some of the things that you can feel? You know, for me, when I was challenged on, and again, this didn't happen in the cost counting. This happened a couple months later when Kip McKean realized that, you know, I wasn't going every Sunday. I didn't even know what a midweek was. And I was real content with my 20 bucks a week even though I should have been given about 200 When I was challenged, Steve, you need to seek the kingdom first and His righteousness. How are you going to grow and mature not coming to midweeks? How are you going to build relationships when you're showing up for church a couple times a month? You need to go in and tell your boss you need Sundays off. You need to go in and tell your boss you need Wednesdays off. And if he doesn't give you Wednesdays, if he doesn't give you Sundays... Quit your job. So when we consider making radical steps to sacrifice for the kingdom, what can we experience? I was scared out of my mind. I mean, there weren't a whole lot of jobs like the job I had. I worked in the automobile industry. I got paid commission, but I had a $7,500 a month guarantee. It wasn't a draw. It was a guarantee. That didn't happen. And that was totally God that that did happen. But to be able to walk into my boss and say, hey, you know what, dude, I'm, if, I, if I don't get Sundays and I don't get Wednesdays, I'm out. You know, Sunday, his day with God was uh, the Riviera Country Club. That's what he did on Sundays. He was the owner's son. I, I got zero cloud in a situation like that. I lived in Chino Hills. I just bought a, a new $300,000 home in 1984. Yeah, it's a little ways back. Okay, I'm older than most of you. I had a, the interest rate back then was ten and a quarter percent. My monthly nut was thirty eight hundred bucks. How am I going to find a replacement for that? 
If I ended up, he ends up taking my resignation. I was a little stressed, but you know what? That faith component kicked in. My God's bigger than this. Matthew 6 kicked in. You know, don't worry about that. God knows you need it. Sat down, asked my boss. He kicked back in his chair, and I was waiting for him to, you know, open the drawer and pull out the resignation letter for me to sign off on. And he says, well, let me ask something, Steve. So you go to church in the morning on Sunday, right? Oh, yeah. He goes, can you make it in on one? I'm thinking, oh, my God, praise Jesus. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, one o'clock, yeah! <laughs> Wednesday nights. Um, hmm. Can you open up early on Thursday then? I'll give you Wednesday nights. I'm all, how early? <laughs> give me the keys, man. I'll be here. God worked it out. God blessed it. And I've seen that time and time and time again. And I would imagine most of you have too. You've stepped out in faith. God's taking care of you. There's, and we don't, we don't preach a prosperity ministry because you know what? We're prosperous enough. We've already got eternal life. How do you put a price on that? But God does bless us. May not always be monetary, but where's your, where would your life today be without God? Without the kingdom? Without this? Without the fellowship? When we consider making radical steps to sacrifice, yeah, we can be fearful. God tells us that we shouldn't worry. To seek His kingdom first and His righteousness. God expects us to seek the kingdom first and His righteousness. And He will take care of us. How do we seek the kingdom of God first? We desire above all else to enter, participate, and spread the news about God's reign on earth. In the earthly kingdom that sets us up for the eternal one. Let's see what this, let's see what this looked like in the first century. Final passage. Acts 2.41. Acts 2.41. Man, I hear those pages. I don't know why I haven't noticed that before. It's been a while. Yeah, it must be the acoustics. Or you guys are doing it really loud for me. Acts 2.41. It says, Those who accepted His message were baptized. And that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And here's what seeking the kingdom first looks like. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to prayer. And then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all, as anyone had a need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together. Not Wednesdays and Sundays. Not when there's a Bible study. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex. And they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. They devoted themselves to the teaching. And we should aggressively pursue learning the Bible. 
They devoted themselves to the fellowship. We should meet with fellow believers, fellow disciples constantly. In verse 46, it talks about, again, every day devoting themselves to meeting together. Bible study, church services, relationship time, discipleship time. All the believers were together and had everything in common. See, our lives and cultures will blend into more of a kingdom culture. We really understand what God has done for us personally and understanding that we now have a unifying common purpose. The Lord added to their number. The news needs to spread to those around us. As you uh, break out into your discussion groups tonight, final slide. I want you to ask yourself, what changes do you need to make in your life to seek the kingdom first? What changes do you need to make in your life to seek the kingdom first? Second one is, are you ready to get back to prioritizing every aspect of what we just saw here in Acts 2? When you read Acts 2, do you see yourself? Do you see yourself being devoted to the things that are talked about in that passage? Are you ready to start prioritizing church services, elevate midweeks, Bible studies, spiritual fellowship? The Jews waited for six centuries for the kingdom of God. Jesus personally opened the door for each and every one of us to be able to enter the kingdom. We need to be willing to give up everything and anything that would get in the way of us seeking the kingdom first and his righteousness in order for us, as we have entered the kingdom of God, to stay within that kingdom of God. Seeking God's kingdom needs to be our number one top priority in our lives on a daily basis. And we will see God work powerfully in our lives. We will see growth and maturity on an individual basis with each and every one of us. And we will see a point in time where this facility won't even come close to holding those that have had the opportunity to hear from you about God's kingdom and what it will take to enter it. Amen? God bless. You're dismissed. You've just listened to the Elevate Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit elevatecoastal.com.